0: From Freie Universität Berlin, I'm Jonas Benz. And this is the Affect and Colonialism podcast. In recent years, international agencies such as the World Bank have begun to fund parenting interventions to improve young children's brain development in Global South countries. But who decides on the standards for good parenting? And what are the consequences to argue that poverty is based on poorly developed brains? Today, we talk with anthropologist Gabriel Scheidecker about the colonial undercurrents of early childhood interventions. Gabriel, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jonas. Nice to be
0: here. Recently, international development agendas prioritize interventions in early childhood for children in Global South countries to improve development. Why do they do that? And what's the rationale behind it?
1: So the idea is that interventions into early childhood, or they're also called parenting interventions, are really the most effective way to improve not only individual lives, but actually whole societies, especially the economic development, but also the societal development. So the idea is that populations are poor because of poor early childhood development. So the explanation is If children in early childhood do not develop in an optimal way, this would lead to poor school achievement, and poor school achievement then in turn would lead to low adult productivity. They also say high welfare dependency or high criminality. So this is like a a cycle early childhood development leads in the end to low adult productivity and these adults when they raise their own children do it again in a suboptimal way which leads to this what they call intergenerational cycle of poverty. So the idea is that poverty is reproduced through poor parenting and poor early childhood development. So now the idea of these interventions is to break this cycle by teaching parents and also other caregivers how to foster early childhood development in the best possible way. And then of course the whole story turns around they become more successful in school they become more productive as adults less dependent on welfare and so on and then if you do these interventions nationwide, so the idea this will increase economic development overall.
0: So these interventions are then, if I understand you correctly, directed to somehow improve the practice of parenting, to make parents more able to educate and parent their children in a way that the brains of their children in the first three years can develop properly. What does this good parenting look like?
1: So they have basically two foci. One is on early cognitive development. And the other is on socio-emotional development. And as you just mentioned, they usually also refer to the brain structure and function. But this is just another way of looking at cognitive development and socio-emotional development in their view. And they have different parenting standards, which are considered to be optimal for both cognitive development and socio-emotional development. So for cognitive development, they say early stimulation is crucial. And by that, they mean parent-child play-play parent-child verbal interactions, providing adequate toys to children, and so on. And concerning the socio-emotional development, they want parents to act with their children in what they call responsive caregiving. That means responding sensitively to all of the children's cues to their signals and this is derived from attachment theory and is believed to lead to secure attachment and this is believed again to be important for optimal socio and emotional development. And these standards, they are derived mainly from developmental psychology or from the developmental sciences altogether. And now the problem is, in my view, that these scientific findings are extremely biased They have an ethnocentric bias because almost all of the foundational research has been conducted in a very specific social segment that is in what is often called weird societies. That means Western-educated, industrialized, rich, democratic people. So what we often call the Western-educated middle class. So almost all research has been conducted there. And also almost all of the researchers come from this kind of society. And then the problem is that, of course, these middle class people and their children live in very specific conditions. You don't find the same conditions everywhere. So it is really questionable if uh, these standards will help the children to develop better. Or to put it, actually this is more important, the question is, do these children not develop properly? And are the practices these parents use actually as deficient as these proponents of early childhood interventions would say?
0: So what you're saying is that the standards of what proper brain development in early childhood is and what good parenting that furthers this development looks like, that these standards are derived from upper middle class people in Europe and the US. The studies come from there and this is what is considered good and normal and other kinds of parenting practices, other kinds of developmental processes in other contexts are then automatically seen as deficient, right?
1: Yeah, one could say so. Um, they are automatically seen as deficient, or they are not seen as at all. The crucial point is maybe that these kind of interventions claim to be based on the best available scientific evidence. Now, we already discussed on one problem of this scientific evidence, that it is just research from particular disciplines, I should add that as well, and in very specific regions of the world. So we have All kinds of research from many uh, different disciplines, from social sciences, for example, anthropology, cultural psychology, indigenous psychology, sociologies from various uh, regions of of the global south, that have studied early childhood development and have come to very different conclusions. So the main problem is, which I see, that this Uh, Research, which is actually on the areas where these interventions are implemented, is not included in the evidence base to inform these interventions.
0: So what exactly is this scientific problem? Can you give us an example for that?
1: Right. Um, As I mentioned before, early stimulation is considered really crucial for proper brain development. So even if we buy into this, if we say, okay, we agree that early stimulation or a specific kind of early stimulation is crucial, then we can still see that the science claiming that these children, children in the global south, are lacking early stimulation is really limited or even wrong. Because what they are doing to figure out if these children receive early stimulation is looking at parent-child interaction. And then they frequently find, okay, parents may rarely play with their children because they have other things to do. Maybe they rarely engage in this kind of conversations we might expect between parents and children. But now we have so many ethnographic studies that are showing, on the one hand, okay, it is true that parents might play not so much with these children. However, this does not at all mean that children receive little early stimulation because normally what we observe is that there are many other social partners who interact all day long with these children in a playful manner. So they receive it, but they just don't receive it in this specific expected way. And this is exactly what you said before. This is like confusing differences different ways of early stimulation or different social contexts of early stimulation, confusing it with deficits. So everything which diverges from this model of the Western middle-class nuclear family setting becomes automatically cast as deficits. And this then amounts to the claim that altogether these children do not uh, develop properly and even have a brain structure and function that is not optimal and that in the end should explain the economic
0: situation they are in. So what this basically means is that these development aid workers go to global south countries with in their backpack a standard for how white middle-class people educate their children, find that people in Global South countries do not adhere to these parenting practices, and then tell them to educate their children differently. This is very reminiscent of colonial policies also directed to differently educate children. Isn't there a similarity? I mean,
1: uh, first I have to say that I'm not an expert in the history of colonization, but it is quite obvious that there's a continuation, especially when you are talking about this civilizing mission, which has played a very important legitimizing role for colonization in the global south. Of course, the proponents of early childhood interventions, they would not say that this is now a civilizing mission. They also would not say that our goal is to make these children into Western middle class people or change these children or make them develop exactly the same way as we do, they completely decontextualize it by saying, okay, all we want is the optimal brain development. All we want is raise your intelligence. All we want is increase your productivity in adulthood. So, and I would even say they avoid saying this is a civilizing mission because this argument is completely delegitimized by now because this has been criticized a lot of course in the public discourse so you cannot uh, legitimize such an intervention by saying they are not as we are so we need to <laughs> change them and for this reason i would say they use other arguments and these are mainly scientific arguments but then we can observe from the outside and this is not only me there are a lot of studies that have shown this but the science they are using to legitimize their work is really a science from the global north And it's not only that. Science that has been conducted in various contexts in the Global South, as I mentioned before, is actively excluded, I would say, from this scientific base. So there are many similarities. I think there are also some differences or some shifts which have occurred over the last decades and maybe the last century. So here the idea was very similar, that these children in early childhood have a negative influence from their parents. And this is part of the problem. But the strategy was slightly different. In this case, the idea was we need to remove them from these negative influences. And now the idea is to optimize first the parents in order to optimize early childhood development. So I think this is partly different, but this is actually quite a recent development. There are also other shifts involved. For example, frequently it's said that this is a move from survival to thriving. So uh, up to the 90s, the focus was very much when it comes to early childhood on child survival, child health. And so focusing on the body and also focusing just on creating some conditions in which they can live and survive and be healthy and so on. But now you have this idea of thriving. That means of optimizing or improving. And that also means the work is never done. It can always be improved.
0: There is another aspect that sounds Problematic. If you think about it a little longer, doesn't this whole idea of early childhood interventions, international development, presume that right now, at least, the majority of the populations in global South countries, because of poor early child development, do not have brains that are as developed as in upper-middle-class Western contexts? So they basically have poor brains is that not to be provocative a kind of racism i mean first i have to say so far i have not
1: much focused on this question uh, my focus was really on the scientific evidence and the question how valid well is this scientific evidence yeah and the question of racism is i would say rather complicated it really depends on the focus so when you ask Are these people who work in the NGOs and so on racist? I mean, of course, I cannot judge that, but as far as I know, they're mostly really well-intended people. I mean, they're often people who are really idealistic. They want to improve something. They want to improve our society to work for a more just society. And now you could ask, okay, is this rationale about the, for example, the intergenerational cycle of poverty, is it racist? I mean, I would tend... To say it is racist, especially concerning some of the claims which result from this idea, namely the claims that poor people are poor because they are poorly developed, as you just said in similar terms. If you would ask them, they would probably say, no, we are not racist at all. This means Actually, when you criticize us, you prevent us from changing the world in a fundamental way to create a more just and more equal society. Because what we are doing, we are not saying people are deficient by nature or something like that. We're just observing that children in poverty, no matter where it is in the global south, can be also in the global north, no matter how they look like, if they grow up in poverty, this means they do not reach their full human development potential. And we simply want to improve that. And here I would say quite clearly that this can have really racist effects because these interventions and the rationales behind it, they are widely disseminated on uh, websites of UNICEF, all the organizations, in the TV and so on, on billboards, because in the end they are depending on fundraising. So they need to publicize these ideas And now you could say, okay, they do that in a way to elicit sympathy and so on among, I would say, more left leaning people so that they help donate money and so on. But of course, everybody begins to know about these discourses and they can be interpreted in a very different way. For example, UNICEF says something which sounds at first glance quite positive, building brains, building futures. But of course, you could also reverse it and say, okay, ah, this means that um, the people in the global south in general, they have not properly built brains, so to say, and that's why um, they have no future. And now if these people come as immigrants, we we don't want them and so forth. So this really could uh, reinforce existing stereotypes and it can reinforce it in a very powerful way. First, this comes from official important institutions with a high standing, UN organizations like UNICEF or the World Bank or the World Health Organization. And secondly, it comes as a result of science. So, in the end, such views are scientifically legitimated in the eyes of people who really want to believe these things.
0: There's another aspect that is curious about this whole model of childhood intervention. Because if you focus so much on early childhood, which is basically the first three years of a child, and this is in a way the only moment in a person's life where you can really influence brain development in a meaningful way, does that then not also mean that later when children are older, when they go to school or later to university or in adult life, that in that case when their early childhood had gone wrong in some way, that they are lost? for improving their lives, for getting out of poverty. Doesn't that also, in a way, give up on people after year three?
1: Yeah, I think here it depends again on, let's say, in an anthropological way. It depends on the emic perspective or the ethic perspective. I think most proponents of early childhood interventions, they would say, no, we have a life course perspective All stages in the life of a child or an individual are important but at the same time they rely on reasoning that says the earlier the intervention the better, the earlier intervention the more effective and especially the earlier the intervention the more cost effective. Our later development depends on foundations that have been created in earlier development. So the idea is when I invest $1 in early childhood, I will get a return on investment of, let's say, $14. i am not just making this up. You find such numbers in the literature. And this is based uh, mainly on economic reasoning or economic science, behavioral economics. A very uh, famous figure is the Nobel laureate James Heckman. He has written a very influential article in Nature, or Science, I believe, which is now known as the Heckman Curve. So the idea is, as I just said the earlier, you invest, the more you get out. And this curve at some point means that the return is lower than the investment. So exactly from an economic perspective, in somehow in middle school, you would say, okay, it doesn't make sense anymore to invest anymore. They are already lost to society
0: in a way. But particularly as social scientists, we are used to think of poverty as a social, structural phenomenon rather than something that is somehow even biologically located in the individual person. Does this whole approach not, in a way, shift the gaze from the structural causes of poverty, economic inequality, marginalization, discrimination, and put it basically in the responsibility of individual parents and their young children?
1: Yes, this is certainly right. This is also what other people have said, what other scholars have said, what is also commonly known as blaming the poor, or also in this specific case actually blaming the mothers, because the mothers are considered to be mainly responsible for early childhood development. Yeah, and of course, this kind of idea that the poor are poor because they're poorly developed and because they raise their children in a poor way, this shifts resources, I would say, in the end, uh, who have been uh, directed at structural levels towards these kinds of interventions that focus on the individual level. I mean, you can see that in very concrete terms when you compare interventions focusing on school and education and interventions focusing on on early childhood. So here's the idea. Children perform not very good in school because of early childhood development, while interventions that would focus on schools would say they don't perform well because the schools are not good. So we need to improve the schools or change the curriculum, or whatever is seen as a problem on this level. So this shifts the attention towards early childhood, and then they talk about the school readiness, which is again really focusing on the individual. And I think we know from the literature about this education system in post-colonial contexts, that there are really a lot of problems that are also legacies of the colonial times, because these school systems have often been produced or created in colonial times not to serve the population, but to conserve the colonial rulers. So it, you could say it's even problematic if you say, okay, let's leave the schools as they are and just try to adapt the children in a way that they perform better in these school systems.
0: In your work, you're maybe a bit of an untypical anthropologist, Because in recent years, you have started to publish your research, not exclusively in anthropological journals, but also in exactly those fields we have now been talking about. Child development studies, developmental psychology and so on. Why do you do that and what do you think is the potential for bringing these kinds of decolonial critiques into these disciplines?
1: I mean, maybe the starting point is the observation and also the personal experience that we have already a lot of research on childhood, on childrearing in all kinds of contexts of the world. I have myself been engaged in ethnographic research on childhood in Madagascar, for example, in a rural context there. And then to observe that this knowledge, this ethnographic expertise plays no role is irrelevant when it comes to these large-scale interventions that are directed to the same context, to the same families we study as anthropologists. So this observation is really my motivation, also the starting point to why I really became interested in this kind of issue. And yeah, from my perspective, the reason is not the lack of criticism. I mean, I think many anthropologists understand themselves as critical scholars and our literature is full of criticism. But the problem is, in my view, that this criticism doesn't reach those that we criticize in many cases. Because those which we criticize, they are often in different disciplines and they belong to different scientific communities. So there's really a communication gap. So for me, the logical consequence of that observation is that we have to also communicate across disciplines, across different audiences. I mean, as anthropologists, as social sciences in general, we know that there are multiple audiences around. And it is even a bit strange now to think that okay normally we just publish in anthropological journals if we know that there are multiple audiences and if we know that when we criticize others we're actually talking to other anthropologists who share already this criticism so it sounds not very effective to me so what was really the goal was to reach these scientists i mean i should emphasize that i'm not the only one doing this I'm doing this together with others, and some others are doing that as well. So the strategy is to also uh, publish this, let's say, ethnographic critiques in the journals that are actually consulted by those people we are criticized. One way which has turned out to be quite effective, I would say, is to write commentaries on uh, papers that have recently occurred. And because these commentaries, first, it is a, a possible way for us non-medical scientists because usually they have specific standards for publication so you can only publish empirical studies that follow this methodological standards but you can always write commentaries or perspectives so they have different formats exactly which are there for these debates so you can publish it and then the authors of the original article they also are asked to respond to that So this is a way to make sure that your points are actually noticed. Because otherwise, I would say, they go completely unnoticed, but which is also completely understandable, because we as anthropologists, most of the time, also wouldn't read some medical journals what is written there, although it might be important to some of the points we are making. But of course, as our field is diverse, their field is also diverse, And you always find people who are leaning to one side or to another side. And I think instead of just focusing on the ones which are really opposed to your view, you could also look for people who are moving into your direction and collaborate with them because this can really help For example, there's the influential pediatrician Yoko Olusanya from Nigeria. She has written several commentaries in really influential journals like Nature, The Lancet, and so on, where she points to the problem that this whole field of early childhood interventions has been created by a handful of Western, or to be more precise, American scientists, and they now want to decide what is happening in the Global South, while there are also many voices from the Global South who could say something about this. There is a critical movement emerging within the field of global health itself. So there's a kind of sensibility emerging This is also related to the fact that these interventions are now being implemented and people who work there encounter all kinds of problems. So there's also an interest emerging in these topics.
0: Gabriel, thank you very much. Thanks, Jonas, for having me.